Of all the strange things that Graham came upon that night, none jarred him more upon his habits of thought than this place. The spectacle of the little pink creatures, their feeble limbs swaying uncertainly in vague first movements, left alone, without embrace or endearment, was wholly repugnant to him. The attendant doctor was of a different opinion. His statistical evidence showed, beyond dispute, that in the Victorian times the most dangerous passage of life was the arms of the mother, that there human mortality had ever been most terrible. On the other hand, this Kreish company, the International Kreish Syndicate, lost not one-half percent of the million babies or so that formed its peculiar care, but Graham's prejudice was too strong even for those figures. Along one of the many passages of the place they presently came upon a young couple in the usual blue canvas peering through the transparency and laughing hysterically at the bald head of their firstborn. Graham's face must have showed his estimate of them, for their merriment ceased and they looked abashed. But this little incident accentuated his sudden realization of the gulf between his habits of thought and the ways of the new age. He passed on to the crawling rooms in the kindergarten, perplexed and distressed. He found the endless long playrooms were empty. The latter-day children at least still spent their nights in sleep. As they went through these, the little officer pointed out the nature of the toys, developments of those devised by that inspired sentimentalist Froebel. There were nurses here, but much was done by machines that sang and danced and dandled. Graham was still not clear upon many points. But so many orphans, he said perplexed, reverting to a first misconception, and learnt again that they were not orphans. So soon as they had left the creche, he began to speak of the horror that babies in their incubating cases had caused him. His motherhood gone, he said. Was it a cant? Surely it was an instinct. This seemed so unnatural, abominable almost. Along here we shall come to the dancing place, said Asano by way of reply. It is sure to be crowded. In spite of all the political unrest, it will be crowded. The women take no great interest in politics, except a few here and there. You will see the mothers. Most young women in London are mothers. In that class it is considered a credible thing to have one child, a proof of animation. Few middle-class people have more than one. With the labor department it is different. As for motherhood, they still take an immense pride in the children. They come here to look at them quite often. Then do you mean that the population of the world is falling? Yes, except among the people under the labor department. In spite of scientific discipline they are reckless. The air was suddenly dancing with music, and down the way they approached obliquely, set with gorgeous pillars as it seemed of clear amethyst, flowed a concourse of gay people and a tumult of merry cries and laughter. He saw curled heads, wreathed brows, and a happy intricate flutter of gamboge pass triumphant across the picture. You will see, said Asana with a faint smile. The world has changed. In a moment you will see the mothers of the new age. Come this way. We shall see those yonder again very soon. They ascended a certain height in a swift lift, and changed to a slower one. As they went on, the music grew upon them, until it was near and full and splendid, and moving with its glorious intricacies, they could distinguish the beat of innumerable dancing feet. They made a payment at a turnstile, and emerged upon the wide gallery that overlooked the dancing place, and upon the full enchantment of sound and light. Here, said Asano, are the fathers and mothers of the little ones you saw. The hall was not so richly decorated as that of the Atlas, but saving that, it was, for its size, the most splendid Graham had seen. The beautiful white-limbed figures that supported the galleries reminded him once more of the restored magnificence of sculpture. They seemed to writhe in engaging attitudes, their faces laughed. The source of the music that filled the place was hidden, and the whole vast shining floor was thick with dancing couples. "'Look at them,' said the little officer. "'See how much they show of motherhood.' 
The gallery they stood upon ran along the upper edge of a huge screen that cut the dancing hall on one side from a sort of outer hall that showed through broad arches the incessant onward rush of the city ways. In this outer hall was a great crowd of less brilliantly dressed people, as numerous almost as those who danced within, the great majority wearing the blue uniform of the labor department that was now so familiar to Grant. Too poor to pass the turnstiles of the festival, they were yet unable to keep away from the sound of its seductions. Some of them even had cleared spaces, and were dancing also, fluttering their rags in the air. Some shouted as they danced, jests and odd allusions Graham did not understand. Once someone began whistling the refrain of the revolutionary song, but it seemed as though that beginning was promptly suppressed. The corner was dark and Graham could not see. He turned to the hall again. Above the caryatids were marble busts of men, whom that age esteemed great moral emancipators and pioneers. For the most part their names were strange to Graham, though he recognized great Allen, La Gallienne, Nietzsche, Shelley, and Goodwin. Great black festoons and eloquent sentiments reinforced the huge inscription that partially defaced the upper end of the dancing place, and asserted that the Festival of the Awakening was in progress. Myriads are taking holiday or staying from work because of that, quite apart from the laborers who refuse to go back, said Asano. These people are always ready for holidays. Graham walked to the parapet and stood leaning over, looking down at the dancers. Save for two or three remote whispering couples who had stolen apart, he and his guide had the gallery to themselves. A warm breath of scent and vitality came up to him. Both men and women below were lightly clad, bare-armed, open-necked, as the universal warmth of the city permitted. The hair of the men was often a mass of effeminate curls, their chins were always shaven, and many of them had flushed or colored cheeks. Many of the women were very pretty, and all were dressed with elaborate coquetry. As they swept by beneath, he saw ecstatic faces, with eyes half-closed in pleasure. "'What sort of people are these?' he asked abruptly. "'Workers, prosperous workers, what you would have called the middle class. Independent tradesmen with little separate businesses have vanished long ago, but there are store servers, managers, engineers of a hundred sorts. Tonight is a holiday, of course, and every dancing place in the city will be crowded, and every place of worship. But the women, the same. There's a thousand forms of work for women now, but you had the beginning of the independent working women in your days. Most women are independent now. Most of these are married, more or less. There are a number of methods of contract, and that gives them more money, and enables them to enjoy themselves. I see, said Grant, looking at the flushed faces, the flash and swirl of movement, and still thinking of that nightmare of pink helpless limbs. And these are mothers, most of them. The more I see of these things, the more complex I find your problems. This, for instance, is a surprise. That news from Paris was a surprise. In a little while he spoke again. These are mothers. Presently, I suppose, I shall get into the modern way of seeing things. I have old habits of mine clinging about me, habits based, I suppose, on needs that are over and done with. Of course, in our time, a woman was supposed not only to bear children, but to cherish them, to devote herself to them, to educate them. All the essentials of moral and mental education a child owed its mother, or went without. Quite a number, I admit, went without. Nowadays, clearly, there is no more need for such care than if they were butterflies. I see that. Only there was an ideal, that figure of a grave, patient woman, silently and serenely mistress of a home, mother and maker of men. To love her was a sort of worship. He stopped and repeated, a sort of worship. Ideals change, said the little man, as needs change. Graham awoke from an instant reverie, and Asano repeated his words. Graham's mind returned to the thing at hand. 
Of course I see the perfect reasonableness of this. Restraint, soberness, the matured thought, the unselfish act, the necessities of the barbarous state, the life of dangers. Dourness is man's tribute to unconquered nature. But man has conquered nature now, for all practical purposes. His political affairs are managed by bosses of the black police. And life is joyous. He looked at the dancers again. Joyous, he said. There are weary moments, said the little officer, reflectively. They all look young. Down there I should be visibly the oldest man, and in my own time I should have passed as middle-aged. They are young. There are few old people in this class in the work cities. How is that? Old people's lives are not so pleasant as they used to be, unless they are rich to hire lovers and helpers. We have an institution called euthanasy. Ah, that euthanasy, said Graham, the easy death, the easy death. It is the last pleasure. The euthanasy company does it well. People will pay the sum. It is a costly thing, long beforehand. Go off to some pleasure city, and return impoverished and weary, very weary. There is a lot left for me to understand, said Graham after a pause. Yet I see the logic of it all. Our array of angry virtues and sour restraints was the consequence of danger and insecurity. The Stoic, the Puritan, even in my time, were vanishing types. In the old days the man was armed against pain. Now he is eager for pleasure. There lies the difference. Civilization has driven pain and danger so far off for well-to-do people, and only well-to-do people matter now. I have been asleep two hundred years. For a minute they leant on the balustrading, following the intricate evolution of the dance. Indeed, the scene was very beautiful. Before God, said Graham suddenly, I would rather be a wounded sentinel freezing in the snow than one of these painted fools. In the snow, said Asano, one might think differently. I am uncivilized, said Graham, not heeding him. That is the trouble. I am primitive, paleolithic. Their fountain of rage and fear and anger is sealed and closed. The habits of a lifetime make them cheerful and easy and delightful. You must bear with my nineteenth-century shocks and disgusts. These people, you say, are skilled workers and so forth. And while these dance, men are fighting. Men are dying in Paris to keep the world, that they may dance. Asano smiled faintly. For that matter, men are dying in London, he said. There was a moment's silence. Where do these sleep? asked Graham. Above and below, in intricate warren. And where do they work? This is the domestic life. You will see little work tonight. Half the workers are out or under arms. Half these people are keeping holiday. But we will go to the workplaces if you wish it. For a time Graham watched the dancers, then suddenly turned away. I want to see the workers. I have seen enough of these, he said. Asano led the way along the gallery across the dancing hall. Presently they came to a transverse passage that brought a breath of fresher, colder air. Asano glanced at this passage as they went past, stopped, went back to it, and turned to Graham with a smile. Here, sire, he said, is something. Will be familiar to you, at least. And yet... But I will not tell you. Come. He led the way along a closed passage that presently became cold. The reverberation of their feet told that this passage was a bridge. They came into a circular gallery that was glazed in from the outer weather, and so reached a circular chamber which seemed familiar, though Graham could not recall distinctly when he had entered it before. In this was a ladder, the first ladder he had seen since his awakening. Up which they went and came into a high, dark, cold place, in which was another almost vertical ladder. This they ascended, Graham still perplexed. But at the top he understood, and recognized the metallic bars to which he clung. He was in the cage under the ball of St. Paul's. The dome rose but a little way above the general contour of the city, into the still twilight, and sloped away, 
shining greasily under a few distant lights, into a circumambient ditch of darkness. Out between the bars he looked upon the wind-clear northern sky, and saw the starry constellations all unchanged. Capella hung in the west, Vega was rising, and the seven glittering points of the great bear slipped overhead in their stately circle about the pole. He saw these shapes in a clear gap of sky. To the east and south the great circular shapes of complaining wind-wheels blotted out the heavens, so that the glare about the council was hidden. To the southwest hung Orion, showing like a pallid ghost through a tracery of ironwork and interlacing shapes above a dazzling corsication of lights. A bellowing and siren screaming that came from the flying stages warned the world that one of the aeroplanes was ready to start. He remained for a space gazing towards the glaring stage. Then his eyes went back to the northward constellations. For a long time he was silent. This, he said at last, smiling in the shadow, seems the strangest thing of all. To stand in the dome of St. Paul's and look once more upon these familiar silent stars. Thence Graham was taken by a son along devious ways to the great gambling and business quarters, where the bulk of the fortune in the city were lost and made. It impressed him as a well-nigh interminable series of very high walls, surrounded by tiers upon tiers of galleries, into which opened thousands of offices, and traversed by a complicated multitude of bridges, footways, aerial motor rails, and trapeze and cable leaps, and here, more than anywhere, the note of vehement vitality, of uncontrollable hasty activity, rose high. Everywhere was violent advertisement, until his brain swam at the tumult of light and color, and babble machines of a peculiarly rancid tone were abundant and filled the air with strenuous squealing and an idiotic slang. Skin your eyes and slide! Gewoop, bonanza! Gullipers, come and hark! The place seemed to him to be dense, with people either profoundly agitated or swelling with obscure cunning, yet he learnt that the place was comparatively empty, that the great political convulsion of the last few days had reduced transactions to an unprecedented minimum. In one huge place were long avenues of roulette tables, each with an excited, undignified crowd about it. In another, a yelping babble of white-faced women and red-necked, leathery-lunged men bought and sold the shares of an absolutely fictitious business undertaking, which, every five minutes, paid a dividend of ten percent, and cancelled a certain proportion of its shares by means of a lottery wheel. These business activities were prosecuted with an energy that readily passed into violence, and Graham, approaching a dense crowd, found at its centre a couple of prominent merchants in violent controversy with teeth and nails on some delicate point of business etiquette. Something still remained in life to be fought for. Further, he had a shock at a vehement announcement in phonetic letters of scarlet flame, each twice the height of a man, that, We assure the proprietor! We assure the proprietor! Who's the proprietor? he asked. You. But what did they assure me? he asked. What did they assure me? Didn't you have assurance? Graham thought. Insurance? Yes, insurance. I remember that was the older word. They are insuring your life. Dozens of people are taking out policies. Myriads of lions are being put on you. And further on, other people are buying annuities. They do that on everybody who is at all prominent. Look there. A crowd of people surged and roared, and Graham saw a vast black screen suddenly illuminated in still larger letters of burning purple. Annuities on the proprietor. X5 per G. The people began to boo and shout at this. A number of hard-breathing, wild-eyed men came running past, clawing with hooked fingers at the air. There was a furious crush about a little doorway. Asano did a brief, inaccurate calculation. Seventeen percent per annum is their annuity on you. They would not pay so much percent if they could see you now, sire. But they do not know. Your own annuities used to be a very safe investment, but now you are sheer gambling, of course. This is probably a desperate bid. I doubt if people will get their money. 
The crowd of would-be annuitants grew so thick about them that for some time they could move neither forward nor backward. Graham noticed what appeared to him to be a high proportion of women among the spectators, and was reminded again of the economic independence of their sex. They seemed remarkably well able to take care of themselves in the crowd, using their elbows with particular skill, as he learnt to his cost. One curly-headed person, caught in the pressure for a space, looked steadfastly at him several times, almost as if she recognized him, and then, edging deliberately towards him, touched his hand with her arm in a scarcely accidental manner, and made it plain by a look as ancient as Chaldea that he had found favor in her eyes. And then a lank, grey-bearded man, perspiring copiously in a noble passion of self-help, blind to all earthly things save that glaring bait, thrust between them in a cataclysmal rust toward that alluring X-5 per G. "'I want to get out of this,' said Graham to Asano. "'This is not what I came to see. Show me the workers. I want to see the people in blue. These parasitic lunatics—' He found himself wedged into a straggling mass of people. End of chapter 20